So in our Bibles, we are turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, because that's where we left off last week. Thank you. Um, There had been this fellow in the church that Paul was writing to them about who had been having relations with his stepmother and Paul had nothing good to say about that, rightly so. And when we left off, we were just about to start into verse 9 which reads, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. What letter? This is the first letter of 1 Corinthians. Is this supposed to be letter 1A? Or is this actually 2 Corinthians? And then the one we have in our Bible that's 2 Corinthians, should that be 3 Corinthians? Um, Obviously, Paul wrote many times with material that has been lost in the ages. And if we believe, as we do believe, in the uh, inspiration of Scripture, what has been preserved for us has been preserved for a reason. What has been lost has been lost. It doesn't mean it's not valuable. It doesn't mean that there's some grand secret to the Christian life that was lost somewhere in time. But I was thinking about this, so that, well, okay, you know, they, somebody took great care to preserve the letter that we have. And they took great care to preserve the second one. Why didn't they take the same care with the original first one? Maybe it was just scrawled on the back of a napkin. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, this is a rabbit trail, but I was once on an airplane and the flight attendant Um, leaned over to me and said and handed me one of the cocktail napkins and said the lady back in rows you know 34 wanted you to have this and it was a book proposal scrawled in red pen on a cocktail napkin because she recognized me from being a teacher at the conference we had both attended I'm glad she was behind me because it meant when I got off the plane, I ran. (laughs) I have no idea who that person was. Um, Now, I've preserved that because it's a great thing to hold up in front of everyone in a class saying, do not do this. Um, It's just weird. Could end up in famous rejection letters. Yeah, it could be. I could have gotten rid of a million dollar book, but no. Anyway, it was just weird. But you think of the disposable nature of our society, but back then, parchment was not, it was rare. I mean, it wasn't something that, you know, you go down to Staples and buy a a ream of parchment. Um, So, but things get lost in in the ancient of times. So, I, I read widely, I listen to a variety of podcasts, I listen to a variety of sermons, and I came across a small podcast called Five Minutes in Church History, uh, put together by the Ligonier organization. And it's fascinating. I mean, five minutes, a little snippet of church history, every day, five days a week. 
And so I was kind of going through some of the old ones that I hadn't ever heard. And there was one called The Lost Letter of Calvin. And I went, what? What is he talking about? So I listened to it. And I won't, I'm going to just illustrate how easy it is to lose something of value. So John Calvin was in Geneva, where we know that's where he was set up, in 1540. He had published his commentary on Romans, which was his first major work. And yet when he got to Geneva to be the pastor of the church, you forget that Calvin was a pastor. He wasn't just this ivory tower theologian, but he was a pastor. And as a busy pastor in a new church, imagine our pastor. I mean, he's got a book contract with Crossway that it might be years before he fulfills the second book because he's not preaching to the Psalms anymore. And that commentary on the Psalms is what he's supposed to be working on, but he's a busy pastor right now taking care of this congregation, helping us, you know, reestablish the church in the body life. Well, that happened to Calvin. For six years, he wrote nothing. Six years. The prolific John Calvin was not writing anything. After six years, he decided, well, and I got, I've worked things out and I have some space, and so he wrote his commentary to 1 Corinthians, which was published to great acclaim. Now he's inspired. And in a fit of intensity, in a very short period of time, he wrote the entire commentary on 2 Corinthians and sent it off to the publisher in Strasbourg. Strasbourg never got it. And Calvin didn't back up his hard drive. (laughs) There was no copy. There was no mimeograph. There was no second person going behind him. It was lost. And a month goes by and there's nothing. And now Calvin is getting really upset because he, you know, he felt it was, you know, God given that, you know, this was something that he was been called to do. Um, he even wrote to one of his friends and said, if this thing is lost, I will never write about Paul again as long as I live. What I like about that, it shows Calvin as a very typical author <laughs> who is frustrated and is just beside himself and he's very human. I mean, it, it was devastating to him. One of his friends, who was not very helpful, said, well, if you had really cared, you would have taken better care of that manuscript. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Joe, for your support. Uh, then suddenly, another go- month goes by and Strasbourg said, Got it, thanks. Two months had gone by. And no one knows what happened. To this day, no one knows what happened to the lost letter from Calvin. Uh, The theory is is that there was a war in between the Holy Roman Empire and the German and a German Swiss component had some weird name right at that period of time. So that means the border of German, Germany, Switzerland, Italy was kind of in an uproar and he's in Geneva and sending it across that border. Who knows? They may have knocked off the mail truck, you know, maybe kicked the guy off the Pony Express. But for some reason, 
it was lost and yet it reappeared. And now in history, we see the volumes and volumes and volumes of John Calvin's work. So something was lost in time. <coughs> Maybe this is what happened to Paul. Yeah. What was it a commentary on? On what? Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. His Second Corinthians one was the one that was lost for a couple months. So here we have Paul referring to a letter we don't know anything about, but we do know its topic. The topic was, do not associate with sexually immoral people. That's been the whole thrust of chapter 5. This guy who's doing this should not be in your congregation. You need to remove him. And when he says, in verse, verse 9, he said, when I say don't associate with sexually immoral people, I'm not talking about those who are in the world, like the, or, the, or the greedy or the swindlers, the idolaters, because if that were the case, you would never go outside. That's pretty much what he's saying here. You are in the world. And we, you know, we see later, it be in the world, not of it, those kind of phrases. But he's saying, I'm not saying don't associate with those that are unbelievers. Verse 11, but I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of Adelphi, brother. And he uses the word Adelphi over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians to identify the members of the church. Adelphoi tra traditionally is translated as brothers, but it can mean brothers and sisters. It means the body. It means whoever is in the body of believers. That's what this means, Adelphoi. Because if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, an idolater, a reviler, drunkard or swindler, don't even eat with such a person. Meaning, not just the Lord's Supper. Obviously, you're getting them out of the congregation. But when you have your potlucks, don't invite him. He's not welcome until he gets his act together. Now, it's interesting if you took, very quickly, one, one pastor uh, pointed out that the, this list of, you know, bad behavior, the first three are intriguing because sexual immorality is a sin against the self. Greed is a sin against your neighbor. And idolatry is a sin against God. Isn't that interesting? How Paul intentionally shows the totality, both inner, horizontally, and vertically. All three directions. In other words, Sin is everything. It permeates every aspect. Inside, outside, and upside. Verse 12. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now there's an interesting structure of that verse, of those two verses. 12a is answered by 13a, and 12b is answered by 13b. So let me read it the way I'm describing it. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? God judges the outside. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Purge the evil person from among you. 
Again, intentional structure on the part of Paul using, I guess, they, what do they call it? Chiatic? Is that CH? I, I can't remember the, the chiasm. chiasm. So you, have, lots, you find it a lot in the Psalms where you'll see this and then this and then this and then this. You know, you have this kind of back and forth going on. And he uses that structure in a simple verse, two verses together, that he's making a really good point. Is that, you know, God will take care of those outside the church. We take care of those inside. It is our duty. And the word purge there is actually the word scrub. <laughs> scrub the evil one. Get a, you know, iron bristle. And you just scrub the grout until it's clean. And then you can have the fellowship without that, uh, that aspect being soiled. By the way, 13b, purge the evil person among you is a quote of Deuteronomy 17.7. And it's repeated six more times in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy seven times writes, purge the evil one among you. 17.7, 19.19, chapter 22, 21 and 22 and 24, and chapter 24, verse 7. So multiple times the book of Deuteronomy makes this a clear thing and the church has forgotten this. So it was actually a part of the Jewish law. So the synagogue and the people within the Jewish community, if there was someone who was being just, they would say, get out. You know, we will restore you when you repent and you come back. But right now, you can't be among us. Now, one little interesting thing, and I don't know whether I agree with it or not, but one commentator asked the question, was this particular man, the man who was having these relations with the stepmom, was he restored? And was it written about in 2 Corinthians? I never had never heard that ever before. But if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, and I know it's a stretch to apply this to this particular section, but just for a moment, just relax our skepticism and make and wonder, because maybe a, six months to a year later, Paul writes, now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough meaning that person has been put out of the church. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ possible. It's tenuous because it's not a direct uh, reference to chapter 5 but it is an interesting idea because isn't that the goal of church discipline? The goal of church dis discipline is not punitive. 
It's not to punish. It is to discipline. It is to put someone in a position where they have to face their sin and correct it. They may choose not to. But what if they did? And you gave them the opportunity to come back into the fold. So, we move on to chapter 6. Now, chapter 6, you know, on the face of it, it's fairly straightforward. You could read this chapter in, you know, less than 10 minutes, and you go, yeah, I figured that out. It's kind of obvious. Don't sue people who are part of the body of the church, and don't lay with prostitutes. I mean, what? so what's... I mean, come on, Steve. How can you spend an hour talking about that? Uh, just give me a chance. <laughs> it's also fascinating to me, if you think about how Paul has been writing, he goes from man who's having relations with a stepmother to lawsuits. That's an interesting segue. There is no segue. It's just you go from one to the next, and then he's back into sexual immorality. This section on lawsuits is, what, bordered, uh, bracketed by the concepts of sexual immorality. And yet, it, it holds its same weight. So let's look at it and kind of ask some of these questions. The first thing that we have to do before we start getting into the details of lawsuits, we have to look at the background of the Roman court system to understand why Paul is writing this so directly and specifically. Because wouldn't it just be simpler just to say, guys, just be nice to each other. But he gets really specific. This is why back then, there was no reality TV to watch. Instead, they would go to the court. The court system in the Roman world was the reality TV show of the week. You would have these heavyweight people getting up and making these outlandish statements and the arguing and the back and forth, the cacophony and the, you know, the crowd's going, oh, this is great. I put $5 on him. You think, you know, what, what do you think? And it becomes this entertainment. Now, fast forward 1,800 years, and you have the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Those lasted, what, eight hours a day for multiple days? And thousands of people came out to watch? Number one, all those people must have been unemployed. <laughs> And number two, I've tried reading portions of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, just out of curiosity. I've nodded off. It's dry. It's, oh my goodness sake. There's no drama to this. This is just, you know, it's very smart. Not anything like the debates that we're watching on TV recently. The, I mean, it's just such a different different time. So go back 2,000 years and literally that was their entertainment. They had their games once every couple years, 
in the, the Athenian games, the Isthmus games actually. But during the week, there wasn't a Colosseum with gladiators in Corinth. Uh, they just, this was their entertainment. Secondly, the court system was rigged against the poor and the weak. Number one, the magistrates who were the judges in civil courts, the magistrates were elected by the voting class, which meant you had to be a citizen and you had to have the standing to be able to vote, which meant more than likely you were of a certain wealth level. Next, jurors were required to have a net worth of 7,500 denarii. And I went, well, so 7,500 7, denarii, what's that, $12.50? No, a denarii was a day's wage. So I tried to do some math very quickly. If you're making $50,000 a year as a salary, to be a juror, you would have to have a net worth of $1 million. Okay, that's 20 years of work to be, in other words, it was only the wealthy. Who were the jurors? Next step, you could not sue someone who was of higher rank or who was wealthier than you were. You could only sue down. So if you had been, you know, you're, the, the home builder who came in and built your home and was some wealthy developer and they forgot to put in the plumbing, you couldn't sue them because they're wealthier than you. But when you refuse to pay him, he can sue you to get the money. Then your public status determined the truth of your testimony. Talk about a corrupt system. In other words, the wealthier you were, the more upstanding of a citizen you were, meant the more truthful your statements are. And he could say, well, there's a hole in the backyard. Why do you need indoor plumbing? What's your problem? I built, I dug the hole. He goes, but it wasn't what we talked about. Well, you're lying, you have plumbing. You see, you see how corrupt this is? The system was designed to be manipulated through bribes, social pressure, etc. Where it got interesting was when two equally wealthy people had at it. So, let's take Paul's context. He's, he's saying within the church body, within this small group here, you should not be suing, well, Carl, because he has the name Carl. You have a Carl. And you want him to change his name. You know, that, that's just not right. We can't have two Carls. You see how silly this can get? And then people sue each other in the body. But let's say you are of equal wealth and standing. The only way to win is to shame the other person or to, uh, as they say, to discredit them or bring dishonor to them. 
And Paul is saying, you do that in the public eye. You are shaming the name of Christ because you are standing as representatives of Christ and the only way to win is to shame the other one or bring the other one down. And you're doing that in the public eye. You see, that's where this is getting really odd. And then on top of that, let's say you are a slave and he's a wealthy landowner. You can't even sue him for the first, in the first place. You, you can make a complaint, but no one's going to listen to you. And that's not right either. As I wrote here, Paul was appalled. And the pun is intended. Nobody laughed. Good. <laughs> See, that's... Okay, you did get one. Okay, got one. Ha <laughs> ha. But just go ahead. Well, consider what you just outlined as the people who would be in the lawsuits would only be the upper class, that would very well explain why the general public would really have a good time watching the fireworks because they're jealous. They, they're jealous of them. Yeah, and so no matter which one won or lose, you know, they're going to see some fireworks and they're going to mm -hmm. see some, some barbs and it's, it's I can it's see like, where they, yeah. It's like it, watching the Democrat debates. Or, or, or any of the, the We're looking for the zingers. We're looking for, ooh, he got him. Yeah, yeah. He's tearing him down. Woohoo! Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's like watching a really bad car wreck. All of the all politics is kind of like that anyway, but this isn't politics. This is real life, people having disputes and taking it into the world. And Paul is saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance or a legal dispute, against another, does he dare, or to even use a better word, does he have the audacity to go to law before the adikoi, the unrighteous, instead of the hagioi, the holy ones? So you have A-D-I-K-O-Y for unrighteous, and H-A-G-I-O-I, hagioi, for holy or saints. The contrast of the unholy and the holy. You have the audacity to do this, in, to take your disputes to those who we just talked about earlier in this letter that, are, that don't have wisdom. The wisdom of Christ is foreign to them. They don't understand. And see, to win in a Roman court is to use the tactics of the world. And that is to destroy, to denigrate, to undermine the opponent. <clears throat> Verse 2. Do you not know, by the way, do you not know, is the first time of six in this chapter where he uses that phrase. Do you not know? Oh, I mean, that's hearkening back to Isaiah. Or Isaiah just shouts out, do you not know who God is? And he's sitting there saying, Paul, Paul says, you guys know this already. Why do I have to write this? Do you not know that the Hagioi, the, the, the holy, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Of course, 
that whole phraseology that the saints will judge the world and that we will judge angels, I got kind of confused and I'm, you know, I read many different commentaries on this. Many point to Revelation 20 verse 4 where there is a judgment of um, at the end of time on the unrighteous by those who are the righteous. Suggesting that the Hagioi, those who are in Christ, those who are in heaven will be on the jury. That's one suggestion. Another suggestion is out of Jude. In Jude, verse 14 and 15, it talks about the 10,000 who will be selected by Christ to execute judgment. And in Jude 6, the bad angels are being kept until judgment day. So you have this idea that there are angels that will be judged by those who are um, believers so anyway, it's just, it's, I, I don't have a definitive thing here other than say, that's interesting. He's trying to make a statement. It may be he wrote about this before. It may be he taught this when he was there. Otherwise, why would he twice in two verses say, do you not know? I've already talked to you about this. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And I say this to your shame. Remember earlier, he, at the end of chapter 4, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you. And now he turns around and goes, I am writing this to shame you. Shame on you for doing that. For airing this kind of stuff in the corrupt courts of the day. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the Adelphoi? But Adelphoi goes, goes to law against Adelphoi, and that before Adekoi, the unholy. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Instead, why not suffer wrong? Why not just be defrauded? But you, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own Adelphoi, your own brothers. Now, there's been interesting discussion that rolls around at the various teachers and preachers. And they say, well, it's evident that Paul is responding to the corrupt public court. And rightly so. There should be no reason to have church disputes being brought under than the public. So at the same time, we have to be careful that we are not hiding things either. I mean, how many times, especially in recent years, where various things have come to light and a church has tried to suppress it? Now, usually that's in immorality issues, um, but because this is really talking about civil disputes. Then someone made the comment, says, but the American court system is fair. It's not corrupt like this. It can't be bought, usually. Um, but, you know, so we can actually trust the system. But the principle is the same. If you have a dispute with a brother or sister, and it's one that is egregious enough to 
need to have a arbiter, a third party judging. Why put your laundry in front of someone who is not a believer? Or who does not use the Bible as their criteria for their answers? What does the American court system use as their criteria? The law, the constitutional law, and the laws can be changed. One year it's wrong to smoke marijuana, the next year it's okay. One year it's wrong to have gay marriages, the next year it's okay. So the law can be rewritten, which means man's law changes. God's law does not. Very different idea, ideal and a very different principle. And the judge in a court, even if they are a believer, has to go by the secular law that they are bound to uphold. Even if they disagree with it, they are bound to uphold it. Interesting thought. Now, <clears throat> Matthew 18, chap verses 15 to 20, is the famous uh, thing of how uh, believers deal with conflict with each other. First you go to them individually, then you go with them with someone else, and then you bring it before the body. You know, you're trying to do your best to reconcile the difference, whatever that may be. I have a situation, you know, because as a literary agent, I have to have a uh, physical written agreement between myself and my clients just to make sure we have all our legal things worked out. So legal expectations for, for them, legal, legal expectations for me. But I have a clause in, those, in that agreement called the dispute clause. And in it, I lay out Matthew 18. So if we have a dispute, we will follow this. And if we are unable to come to an agreement with that, then we will choose the, a, a form or a, our organization like the Christian Conciliation Society, because that's a great organization, Ken Saney, uh, up in Minneapolis. And they will come in and it's a third party completely um, uh, impartial, but Bible-based. And they will hear it out, and then they will declare the thing. And we have to agree to it. It's all set out there. It doesn't go to the court. So years ago, when I first became an agent, I, I don't even remember who the client was. I was trying to remember for sake of this conversation. Um, but he sent that agency agreement to his lawyer. This lawyer calls me and he goes, I'm Jewish and I have never seen a dispute clause like this in my entire career. I had to find a Bible and read Matthew 18 to find out what the heck you were talking about. And he, and he kind of paused and he went, it's actually kind of cool. <laughs> you know, it makes a lot of sense. He says, I can see why you have it in there. I said, well, you know, it is the biblical way uh, for, for Christians who accept the word of God. He goes, huh. He says, then there's no way that this can go to court. I said, exactly, because there's no need. We agree now that if it ever gets to that point, 
that will use a Christian conciliation organization. And he goes, huh, well done. He says, I just had to call you and talk to you because I have never seen anything like this in my life. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? But you realize how crazy things can get inside a church if they don't have this principle in mind. It just boggles my mind that a church sued its pastor, their sitting pastor, over the intellectual property rights of his sermons. And it went to court. They couldn't read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They couldn't read Matthew 18. They had to go to the public court, which meant it got into the news, which meant it crossed my desk, and I'm going, what are you people, nuts? And it was because this pastor was making money on his books, and his books were based on his sermons. And the church was saying, but we own those sermons because you created them on our time. I've talked to our pastor about this already, and there is an agreement between the church and our pastor. Um, I helped one of my other clients, who is a pastor of a megachurch, draw up the agreement between he and the church for everything he produces. And the bottom line is, if you're curious, Camelback Bible has the right to his sermons in perpetuity, in whatever form or fashion, as long as they don't publish them in book form without his permission. And if he so chooses to then turn it into book form, fine. But in other words, he can't say, take my sermons off the website if he were to leave. They own them. So anyway, in case you're curious, it's, that's a very simplified way of describing it. But a church sued their, past, their sitting pastor can you imagine the temptation of that pastor to start preaching damnation sermons for the next year? To <laughs> say, yeah, you want these? Okay. <laughs> you people. And it just, I mean, goodness sake. That's, it's silly. But I'll tell you, you know, we all know this in, 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 our, in our life, that when money gets involved, people lose their minds. They just lose their minds. Why not rather just suffer wrong? Why not just be defrauded? I mean, okay, so you got skewered by that landscaper who you sit in the pew with. Or you bought something from, uh, or you, you, uh, you sold something to a fellow person in the church and he never paid you. Okay? You can take care of it inside the body. And he says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. It's really sad. And obviously, something was going on here. And that Paul is addressing it. Verse 9, he says again, do you not know that the adequoi the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why you don't take it, your stuff out into the world. Don't be deceived. And then he has a list of nine um, 
behaviors that are sinful, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, um, only three of them are not the same as found in the previous paragraphs list. In uh, chapter 5, verse 11, he doesn't mention adulterers as homosexuality or thieves, but here we are in chapter 6 and he does. So don't make a big deal about comparing the two lists. It just, Paul is uh, in preacher mode. He just starts rattling off sins. And don't mistake, however, any of the um, pro-gay community saying that, chap that verse 9 is only talking about those who are not in love. Because that is not what the word means. Because that's what they're trying to say. Well, if it's a nice relationship and you're in love, it doesn't matter if two men or two women are together. This is really clear. It's a literal word meaning the act of same sex. And it's been a word that was around for a long time. But the key verse here is verse 11. And such were some of you. You could, write, you could do an entire sermon on just that verse and speak to every member of the congregation. Every single one of us was a sinner, or is a sinner, I should say. But now, he is saying you don't have to stay the same as you were. You're a new creation. You once were this way, but now, verse 11b, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Don't do as some have done and make a a big deal of the order in which Paul wrote those phrases, washed, sanctified, and justified. They're saying he got them out of order and then they get all messed up because he, um, in verse chapter 1, verse 30, he talks about righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So he's not trying to make a theological statement on the order in which things happen. He's trying to describe the salvific event of becoming a Christian. So we come to the section on fleeing sexual immorality. And rather than start in verse 12, I'm going to start in verse 19. One teacher described it this way. He said, so often we'll have a lengthy uh, 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 I mean, a, a long article. But at the end of the article is an executive summary so that the CEO will actually read what you're trying to make a point about. Because the CEO is not going to read the 22 pages you have. They will only read the one paragraph summary. Um, I think it's in Amazon. I think Jeff Bezos made a rule that no more than three slides for a PowerPoint presentation. Or just make your point. Don't just blather on with all your stuff. Just get to the point. What are you trying to get to the bottom line? We have stuff to do. So if you look at verses 12 through 20, 
the last two verses are actually the conclusion of what he's trying to say in all the previous verses. So what I want to look at is that if those two verses are the foundation, it makes the rest of it make that much more sense. So you don't have, I mean, we can look at it, but let's just look at verses 19 and 20. For the sixth time in this chapter, he writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I have a book here. I'm not going to read from it. I'm just going to show it to you. I might pass it around. But it's by Nancy Piercy, who's one of the great writers in our, um, in our world today. She teaches at Houston Baptist. Um, it's called Love Thy Body. And the subtitle is Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. She just came out last year. And because she teaches college students, she had seven different focus groups. Everything from college freshmen, some believers, some not all the way up into the people in their 30s and 40s and older, various religions, whatever, and was running all of this material past all of them. And it took her two and a half years to write the book because she kept changing it. She kept refining it. Now, this is not an easy book to read. She's a really smart person. She's like the female Francis Schaeffer and actually studied under him when she was younger. Um, but what's kind of ironic is that this is her simplified version. <laughs> I saw an earlier draft and I went, holy smoke, that's just incredible. But she tackles transgenderism. She tackles abortion. She tackles uh, the hookup culture. She tackles homosexuality. Um, she tackles all of this and says what the world doesn't understand is that their attempt to show that sexuality and religious liberty is actually killing themselves. They have it upside down. And I got to this passage, I immediately thought of this book. I'll just pass it around if you want to look at it, flip through it. It's, it's extraordinary work if you want to tackle it. Especially in today's age. We are confronted daily in the news and in the workplace about these deviant behaviors as in trying to normalize them. I mean, having drag queen days at public library systems <coughs> is just beyond the pale. When they have phallus-shaped bookmarks to hand to these five-year-olds. Just come on, people. That's not even remotely decent. And it's just, anyway, I won't get into that. Let's just get back to the text. So, do you not know that your body is a temple? Now remember, in John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He was referring to his body, right? And the word temple there, there are two different Greek words for temple. I mentioned this back in uh, chapter 3. Um, when it talks about your body being a temple. 
the word temple there doesn't mean the entire uh, grounds. The word temple here means the interior temple, the holy, the holy of holies, the holy place, the place where God dwells. So even Jesus said, destroy this temple where God dwells, and I'll raise it back up. Here we have Paul saying, your body is a temple, same word, N-A-O-S, naos, the same word for temple that Jesus used. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul wrote, do you not know that you are God's temple, naos, and that God's spirit dwells in with dwells in you and if anyone destroy God's temple God will destroy them for God's temple is holy and you are that temple that entire two verses the you is plural because he's talking about the unity of the church and the need for the body as a group to see themselves as God's dwelling place but in verse 19 of chapter 6 it's singular personal your body He's not talking about the church body now. He has turned it from the group and narrowed it, the focus down to each individual. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So I thought about a variety of things and I made all sorts of various notes. Um, you have a three-part, if you want to call it a three-part sermon right here. You were bought with a price, you're not your own, so glorify God with your body. Number one, you're bought with a price. What does he mean by that? Charles Spurgeon, who is so eloquent, He's talking about rich people. He says, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. With all their riches, the whole of them put together could not rescue a comrade from the chill grasp of death. They boast of what they will do with us. Let them see to it themselves. Let them weigh their gold on the scales of death and see how much they can buy from the worm and the grave. The poor are their equals in this respect. Let them love their friend ever so dearly they cannot give to God a ransom for him. A king's ransom would be of no avail. A Monte Rosa of rubies, an America of silver, a world of gold, a son of diamonds are utterly contemned. Boasters think not to terrify us of your worthless wealth. Go and intimidate death before threatening men in whom is immortality and life. There is no way we can buy our redemption. No matter how good you are, how much wealth you are, how much money you have, you can't buy it. But it says you were bought with a price. Well, what was that price? Well, you know the answer. But I started to think about it in these terms. 
imagine you are a slave and you are at auction and you know Mr. Moneybags over here says hundred dollars Mr. Silverbags over here says two hundred dollars he Moneybags says nah five hundred Silverbags a thousand and Jesus from the back says I give myself I'll take his place that's the price Jesus paid the price he took our place and it wasn't just the fact that you know that he had to uh, receive a pinprick or a paper cut he had to die and we forget this we take this for granted uh, you know I, even as I was preparing this and reading various things I began to tear up a little bit and thinking my gosh I don't think about this enough I just don't I take it for granted Charles Spurgeon writes this the fact that you were bought with a price your connection with Calvary is the most important thing about you. I beseech you, if this is so, prove it. And it's in all caps. And Charles Spurgeon put that in all caps. Prove it. Remember the just and righteous proof is by your not being your own, but consecrated to God. If it is the most important thing in the world to you that you were bought with a price... Let it exercise the most prominent influence over your entire career. Be a man. Be a woman. Be an Englishman. But most of all, be Christ's. You can be a citizen, a friend, a philanthropist, a patriot, all those you may be, but most of all, you are a saint redeemed by blood. Extraordinary. It's not something, this price was not something that could be found at the dollar store. It's not cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without the cross, without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Grace without price is grace without cost. We simply fail to think about this. And then it says, and you're not your own. Olav Olafsson was a free citizen of Sweden, and he found himself hard-pressed for money. So in desperation, he sold his body for medical research to the Karolinska Institute in 1910. A year later, he inherited a fortune, so he went back to the Institute to buy himself back. And they refused. And in a lawsuit, they retained possession of his body. And they even collected damages from him because he had had two teeth removed without their permission. He was not his own. And that's the point that Paul is making here. 
We are not our own. We are one in Christ. Christ in us, us in Christ. Thus, my limbs are Christ's limbs. Where I go, He goes. What I do, He does. We cannot do what the Greeks did under Plato and separate the body and the soul. They said the body is materialistic and yet the soul is divine. In fact, Epictetus uh, put it this way, if I can find my notes here. I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. (laughs) And that was his wife talking to him. No, it wasn't. I mean, some would say that they're a poor soul shackled to a corpse, and I hope Lisa doesn't feel that way. But um, he's basically saying there's this separation. So this corpse, we can do with it whatever we want. We can have sex, drugs, rock and roll. We can do whatever we want to it, and it doesn't affect the soul. And what Paul is saying right in the face of Greek and Roman philosophy is, no, that's not true. If you are in Christ, you are not your own. He bought and paid for you. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Spurgeon puts it this way. Make the tongue speak his praises. Make the mouth sing his glory. Make the whole men bow in willing subservience to the will of him who bought it. As for your spirit, let, the glor- let that glorify God too. Let your private meditations magnify God. Let your soul be to him what, when no one hears you but him. Let your public zeal, let the purity of your conversation, let the earnestness of your life, and let the whole, universal holiness of your character glorify God with your body. Looks like we've run out of time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. We look at these obvious passages of Scripture, and yet, while they're obvious, we still have application. We still need to remind ourselves. And maybe this week, each of us can go in our various places, in our various ways, and contemplate the truth that you bought us with your death on the cross to save us from our sins and we are not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.